So I wanted to do something a little bit different this week and actually read you a story, a very short story. In fact, what is known as a flash fiction story because it's so brief and really talk about the value of this type of very concise fiction. And I teach literary analysis in some of my writing classes. And this story in particular has meant a lot to me over the years as both a writer myself and a professor of writing. And one of the biggest challenges of teaching writing and literary analysis in general, I think, is really asking, like, what is the applicability of this type of reading and this type of analysis, right? And so I wanted to just read it. Again, it's a brief story. It's only about a page long, and it's pretty quick. It's just a few minutes to read. But then talk about doing some analysis in terms of, again, how can it apply to our own real lives, whether as writers, as people trying to navigate through life. And I think that's really interesting. And that's, again, a point that's sometimes lost in some literary analyses or how literary analysis is taught. You're sort of taught, oh, here's how you identify a simile or a metaphor or anaphora or some other fancy sounding technique. And while that's good and maybe useful to understanding how a writer crafts their work, I don't know if it's always 100% useful, especially if those concepts aren't really sort of intuited by the audience, by the class, right? And I would say, knowing that most of my audience is either former students or current students or instructors, maybe the instructors know all of those fancy literary terms, but the students and former students, probably not so much. I mean, maybe some of you do know some of them, but I don't think the majority of us in society walking around remember those terms and techniques from grade school, right? So anyways, before we get into all of that, I'll just read through the story. I might link it in the description so that you can read it yourself, but you can look it up. It's actually titled Sticks by George Saunders. And again, if you just sort of Google it, you should be able to find it. So here it goes. Sticks by George Saunders. Every year Thanksgiving night, we flocked out behind Dad as he dragged the Santa suit to the road and draped it over a kind of crucifix he'd built out of a metal pole in the yard. Super Bowl week, the pole was dressed in a jersey, and Rod's helmet and Rod had to clear it with Dad if he wanted to take the helmet off. On the 4th of July, the pole was Uncle Sam, on Veterans Day a soldier, on Halloween a ghost. The pole was Dad's only concession to glee. We were allowed a single Crayola from the box at a time. One Christmas Eve, he shrieked at Kimmy for wasting an apple slice. He hovered over us as we poured ketchup, saying, good enough, good enough, good enough. Birthday parties consisted of cupcakes, no ice cream. The first time I brought a date over, she said, what's with your dad in that pool? And I sat there blinking. We left home, married, had children of our own, found the seeds of meanness blooming also within us. Dad began dressing the pole with more complexity and less discernible logic. He draped some kind of fur over it on Groundhog Day and lugged out a floodlight to ensure a shadow. When an earthquake struck Chile, he lay the pole on its side and spray-painted a rift in the earth. Mom died and he dressed the pole as death and hung from the crossbar photos of Mom as a baby. We'd stop by and find odd talismans from his youth arranged around the base, army medals, theater tickets, old sweatshirts, tubes of mom's makeup. One autumn, he painted the pole bright yellow. He covered it with cotton swabs that winter for warmth, 
and provided offspring by hammering in six cross sticks around the yard. He ran lengths of string between the pole and the sticks, and taped to the string letters of apology, admissions of error, pleas for understanding, all written in a frantic hand on index cards. He painted a sign saying, love, and hung it from the pole, and another that said, forgive? And then he died in the hall with the radio on, and we sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and the sticks and left them by the road on garbage day. Now, I will say, having just read that story, and I've read that story, I don't know, dozens of times at least, (laughs) there were things that I was noticing as I was reading it that I feel like I maybe some of them I had noticed before in terms of meaningful elements, but others that I hadn't quite made the connections to. And that's a sign of a really good story that the more you read it, you're always discovering something new or maybe more often you can come back to a story after a while. So maybe you don't have to read it every time to get something new, but I haven't read this story maybe like a year and now coming back to it, I'm noticing more, which is really cool. And so anyways, I think what first strikes me with this story and why I've taught it before and why it still really resonates with me is sort of the the less tangible fact of a good story, which I hope you as listeners or readers can relate to, but you certainly can relate to with other writing that you do like or other uh, art that you might enjoy, right? Which is that when I first read this story, before I really started analyzing it, I really felt like I felt something, even though I couldn't pin it down. And then that's where the rereading and the analysis sort of comes in. And that's oftentimes the reaction my students have when they read this story. They (laughs) sort of say, huh, that's weird, or wow, that's sad. Um, But they don't necessarily know why. They don't necessarily have all the answers of analysis, which again is why we maybe do some analysis. But again, as an example, I think it's worthwhile really asking how and why we do analysis and to give some examples. And you needn't really look beyond the first sentence. So I'm not going to go through and analyze the whole thing because I could do that and I could (laughs) probably do several episodes because there really is so much here. But again, I think that really speaks to the quality of this writing and, and how it reflects really strong expression and thought. But let's just take a look at the first sentence, for example. So I'll reread that now. Every year Thanksgiving night, we flocked out behind Dad as he dragged the Santa suit to the road and draped it over a kind of crucifix he'd built out of a metal pole in the yard. Now that alone is a pretty complex opening sentence to a story. And again, I'm not here necessarily to teach today about like what's the best way to start a story or to open a novel or something like that, because there's more than one way. I mean, you can look at a novel like uh, Tale of Two Cities that has one of the longest opening sentences ever, probably, in a novel. Um, It goes on for like a page almost, I think. Or you could look at a book like The Martian by Andy Weir, which, you know, I think the opening line is quite simply... Uh, I was fucked. It was. It's just very emphatic. It's a one-sentence paragraph to open the novel, and it gets your attention, right? So there's lots of reasons and ways that you may structure a story in order to get the, the reader's attention and to start to develop a tone, right? And I think here this is really interesting because this is obviously a bit of a longer sentence, but it is a good example of a good first line because it reflects what comes in the rest of the narrative. And what I mean by that is that this is a very complex 
complicated and almost convoluted sentence, which the story sort of reflects as well. There's a lot of sort of conflict of confusion in this story if you continue to sort of delve through the elements of this idea of this father character struggling to communicate and connect to his family through normal modes of expression. And so we kind of get that here in this first description of a family tradition, right? Every year Thanksgiving night. And so you're already establishing some of these themes right up front, right? This idea of every year. So there's some sort of tradition going on here and that it's on Thanksgiving night, right? Uh, so we know that there's a repetition here in terms of this family, I guess, uh, tradition to put it quite simply. Uh, but look at the specific word choice, right? We flocked out behind dad. This is an important point to note. And again, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that these are skills that you can take in all courses of life. You don't have to be a, a, a literary person to really find value in this. Um, in thinking about word choice, right? What's the more obvious way to say, we flocked out behind dad, we followed dad, right? So the question is, why does this author, why does George Saunders choose to say flocked over followed, right? And it's because there are specific connotations to these more sort of specific synonyms of a word like followed, right? And this is an important point that I tell students as well when they're trying to diversify their word choice and phrasing. I, I say the worst thing that you can probably do that's worse than just going to, uh, to having va uh, repetitive words or phrases is going to a thesaurus and just saying, well, here's a similar one, so I'm at least not repeating the same word like followed, right? Well, that similar word is not ex the same exact word, which is why, again, it's a different word. So the idea of flocking, it sort of establishes, in my mind, this sort of sense of almost a lack of awareness, kind of, they're just going along through the motions, they're really being led by this person, right? And you sort of assume that maybe this person knows what they're doing, right? Because they're flocking. Um, so it's a bit stronger of a connotation than just followed. And again, I think this develops and builds further throughout the story. But then look at the specific word choice moving forward, saying that dad, as he dragged the Santa suit, he's not carrying it proudly, right? That would be a much different way to describe what he's doing. He's dragging, so it almost seems like a burden or a chore, which when you think about connecting that to what was said earlier in the sentence about this being a family tradition every year Thanksgiving night, there's already a conflict there, right? And that conflict is sort of manifested just by that specific word choice. And if different words were chosen, it could be the same situation, the same example, but we have a totally different sense or feeling of what mood is going on here because of that lack of more advanced word choice, right? And it's not like he's using crazy fancy words necessarily that we don't understand, but he's using very specific and very targeted ones. And that's why I like this type of short writing, because I think it's a really good exercise, whether you're writing it or analyzing it in kind of asking, okay, how important is specific word choice? In some cases or instances, yeah, maybe if you choose one word or the, over the other, it's not going to make a huge difference in your reader's mind. But as you can see here, with, when there's a clear intention in terms of a theme, on the writer's part, these decisions become very vital. And again, in a shorter work like this, every word that you choose has more emphasis behind it and more importance behind it because you don't have that flexibility or leeway or wiggle room to continue to try to clarify what you're saying in the longer prose piece, right? Anyways, uh, the Santa suit, he, <laughs> he draped it over a kind of crucifix. Again, 
think about these key words, right? That these very distinct words, draping, uh, a kind of crucifix, right? Not just saying a crucifix, it's a kind of crucifix. So it's almost uh, like a mocking or a bastardization of what that normally would be or should be that he'd built out of a metal pole in the yard. There's a lot going on there, as you can now see, just looking at that, those sorts of very targeted decisions, I think, for an opening line. And that's why I think it's a really good line. Um, there's so much here that I do think if you read through the rest, because I think it's, <laughs> you know, maybe a bit much to go through all of it, but you'll sort of start to see, okay, what's the idea of a crucifix? Well, what connotations come to your mind? R religion, tradition, self-sacrifice, suffering, right? Now, that's planted in your head for a reason. And as you go through, you sort of start to see, huh, this father seems like somebody who's maybe suffering, and then the whole family's suffering, right? And it's a sort of question of, well, why are they doing what they're doing, right, if they are suffering from it? So I love this story for that reason, because you can go through every line, and you will sort of see those connections, which is really cool. And like I said, as I read through, I was sort of noticing things where I said, huh, that, you know, that, that, again, builds upon this sort of sub-theme of that main theme. One line that stood out to me as I was rereading was the idea of, on Groundhog's Day, he brought out a floodlight to ensure a shadow of uh, the, the groundhog pole or whatever. And I thought that was really interesting. I never really thought about that before, this idea of he's really contriving these situations to sort of manifest as a family tradition that nobody else really quite gets or understands or even seemingly cares about. Hence, go to the last line. What do they do? They throw everything out, right? It really didn't mean anything. So everything is kind of layered in this sense, and it really builds upon uh, one point to the next, which is really cool. And again, you see that through these specific further holidays that he mentions in this story. There's good world building in that sense because the level of detail is specific. But he also mentions things that I think are really relevant to developing a sense of reality where he says, uh, Kimmy, which I believe is his sister, it seems like, um, that dad, you know, shrieked at her or something. That is a very sort of just explicit detail that's kind of mentioned as, well, you know, it's just, she's part of this story, right? Uh, and it's not confusing, but it's detailed enough where we kind of feel as if, oh yeah, this makes sense in terms of that would be a member of this this family, right? And there's just really strong targeted lines along those sense. The idea of where it says he hovered over us, very dad-like. I think readers can relate to even concise phrases like that that build into the, the theme at hand here, which is really cool. And if you look at the structure as well, I think that's really interesting because that's something that always comes up in all writing that I look at in all my classes is this idea of paragraphing and how it's so difficult to break free from what most students are taught in grade school or many students at least, the idea of five sentence paragraphs or something silly like that, right? You need an intro sentence, a topic sentence, three supporting body sentences, uh, and a concluding sentence. Yeah, that's a nice sounding model, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the real world, right? And so it's a good place to start, but you look at a story like this and there's two paragraphs, which is really interesting, but there's a clear reason and there's a clear transition. The first paragraph ends with this line about how the narrator brought over a date and asked what's with your dad with that pole, because clearly from the outside, none of this makes sense. But the narrator said, and I sat there blinking, because it also doesn't make sense to those within that world as well. Uh, and it's this idea of sort of a lack of meaning, I feel like. 
Anyways, the idea of these two paragraphs here, you go on to the second paragraph, which is the concluding paragraph because of the virtue of how concise this piece is. And the statement, we left home, married, had children of our own, found the seeds of meanness blooming also within us is also a very distinct topic sentence, right? And it's a transition into, we had the first paragraph of their childhood. Now we have sort of the consequence of their remaining family life moving forward as adults now. So there's this initial uh, introductory paragraph of the earliest memories and the childhood memories, and then the consequences of how this sort of meaningless tradition and family connection perpetuates across generations. And you get a very clear indication of that via that topic sentence. So I thought that was really cool too, really worth mentioning in terms of, again, the, the visual aesthetic structure of just two paragraphs here for this story, how they really convey a certain type of meaning in their relation of the content itself, right? So that was um, really just impressive to me as I thought about the the story itself and this idea of the meaningless cycle of family connection um, and, and how it perpetuates, like I said. Anyways, uh, there are further transitions, I think, in that second paragraph. There's almost like a very strong sense of, I don't know, I guess I would call it gloom and doom. Uh, and the dad becomes desperate as the the lack of meaning becomes more obvious. He sorts of, sort of starts to do crazier things. And the narrator says that dad began dressing the pole with more complexity and less discernible logic. I mean, look, just look at the specific word choice. One of the main things I tell students in the, for their writing, but it's true in life in general is just find better words. And that doesn't again, mean to just go to a thesaurus and pick something that looks different, but the thesaurus tells you is similar. No, look up the actual definition of that specific synonym and ask if it's conveying more accurately what idea or focus you're trying to get across to your audience. And I think you see that here with this word choice. None of these words are shocking or surprising to me. I know what they all mean, but they are all specific to the point being made. And again, it gets dark in this story. Mom died and he dressed the pole as death and hung from the crossbar photos of mom as a baby. It's really a sort of sense of desperation. And again, rather than expressing remorse, it's sort of trying to grasp at something that was never really developed. And you see that later on with the ending line, I think, which is one of the most impressive ending lines to a story I can sort of imagine. Uh, I'll reread it again, because I think it's worth reiterating. Uh, the narrator says, he painted a sign saying love and hung it from the pole and another that said forgive and then he died in the hall with the radio on, and we sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and the sticks and left them by the road on garbage day. Now, from a purely technical standpoint, this almost reads like a run-on sentence. And in fact, you could probably argue that because of the lack of internal punctuation. It's just one long rambling sentence. But that's the point, I think, is that the narrator is trying to convey this sense of almost, I would describe it as panicked remorse. What is the final destination of this lack of genuine uh, family expression and communication and connection and community and meaning? And we see that manifest in that last rambling, rambling line, which it's too late by the time it's at the end. The father, as described, is hanging these signs on these poles, asking for love and forgiveness, but it doesn't mean anything because it hadn't 
the work hadn't really been put in, apparently. Again, at least that's my interpretation. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But anyways, the family sells the house. There's <laughs> there's no transition here. And we sold the house. It's almost like because that's all in the same sentence. It's like, let's just get to the end of this. Let's just get this over with. We sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and sticks and left them on the road by the road on garbage day. Maybe it's hopeful in some ways because the young couple is throwing out that tradition. So hopefully, I actually think it ends on a positive note, even though that sentence itself is kind of sad and remorseful in some ways, because maybe it is possible to break free of the cycle if you do reject all of those sort of physical objects that are working in place of sort of um, actual emotional connection and meaning. And to me, that was sort of what struck me the most about this story was this idea of actual feeling and emotion and expression versus all these talismans and physical objects that you see described throughout this story. And I think, again, this interpretation is very flexible, perhaps. And it's certainly in some ways up to the audience. But I think we can sort of all agree upon the feeling or mood of this piece, as we say, just looking through and pointing out and assessing some of these words and and some of these uh, sort of specific decisions. Again, in this analysis, I have never once mentioned uh, the idea of a metaphor or a simile or any other fancy sounding technique. I'm just describing what's happening. And I think that is perhaps one of the best ways to analyze something is to really just point to the the in the weeds specifics and ask, okay, how is this actually working in conjunction to what else is going on? Again, that's what literary analysis does in general with those fancy words and techniques, but I think you can get there just sort of taking the time to discuss these points as we're sort of doing here, right? And anyways, um, I, I as I was saying about audience interpretation, so my interpretation as a reader is, again, what I said, this idea that, okay, um, it's important to have real meaningful connections with those who you uh, claim or, or um, sort of, I guess, act like you love and are your family, because if you don't, it sort of leads to a stressful life, a stressful environment. Um, I don't know if one reflects the other or one impacts the other. That's sort of unclear to me 100%, but I think it maybe goes both ways. I think that's maybe sort of the point. And that if you're not able to make those genuine connections and have genuine traditions and meaningful traditions of your own, you end up dead in a hall with the radio on by yourself. And that's not good for anybody, right? So I sort of take away that thematic element from it. Like, okay, well, I think the authors may be trying to suggest that we really assess, like, why do we get together for Thanksgiving dinner with our family, right? Why do we get together for whatever holiday, 4th of July, or what? take your pick of whatever holiday you might celebrate, right? What are we really doing that for? How are we really communicating what that means to us and what that means to each other? Because maybe all too often, there are families who just kind of go through those motions and they're not benefiting from these events. Again, you can talk about that more and more. But what I thought was interesting is that when I've taught this story before, I would say overwhelmingly my American-born students will say that part of their interpretation is that this father failed at connecting with his family, which I think that depends how you define failure. But Certainly, the narrator puts some burden on himself as this sort of uh, lack of real connection is manifesting within 
themselves and that this is part of a cycle uh, from one generation to the next. The narrator sounds like they might become the next father of this same story because the father before them was just the son of another father, right? Who similarly failed. But anyways, um, my international students, I would say overwhelmingly look at this story the other way. And they will say when they analyze often that the children failed to connect with the father and that this poor father tried to look at all this work that he did to try to connect with his family. And they were just too selfish or self-centered or uh, ignorant of his efforts. And, you know, he suffered and died alone, which I think is really fascinating. Um, And it might speak to sort of larger cultural differences or just uh, educational differences, but it's worth talking about and discussing. And that's one of the reasons why I love teaching a story like this to sort of see those different perspectives, because I do think that the, the, the idea of the story is that it's not just the burden isn't on just the father or just the children, but it's this idea of a cycle. So I actually think both interpretations are correct in their own way. And that's one of the struggles with writing and literary analysis is oftentimes people say, well, can't you interpret something any way you want if you just find the information to back it? And it's like, yes, but that's an incomplete interpretation or it's a specific focus of the interpretation, which I think is is interesting. And I think that's why this is a, a good example of a story where you can really dive into what it means sort of on a, on a larger scale, as well as more specifically looking at elements within and how they relate to specific sort of uh, focused meanings of how that manifests into a larger point about just this generalized generalized idea of connection and meaning and actual relevant communication among families. So I thought that was really interesting uh, in teaching this story. And I will say, I would love to continue analyzing the story, but I think you get the point. Um, But I will say sort of from George Saunders' own words, because I found this online in an interview, uh, some of his context and perception. And I actually like to do this when I read a story. I like to try to figure it out on my own and then look up maybe what the author has to say. And oftentimes that's wildly different than what I thought, which again, doesn't mean that I'm right or wrong. It just means that maybe I took something different away or I focused on a specific subpoint or sub theme or sub meaning more than what the author intended or what the author deems is valuable from that story. So it's not all BS is the point. It's just that we're looking at different uh, sort of elements of, of a story. Anyways, George Saunders himself says, for two years, I'd been driving past a house like the one in the story. Imagining the owner as a man more joyful and self-possessed and less self-conscious than myself. Then one day I got sick of him and invented his opposite. And there was the story. And I think that sounds about right, right? He's sort of painting a picture of this very specific character based on something that he sort of imagined or the opposite of what he imagined. Anyways, I also like to say if I can boil down a story into a one-line thesis, and I would ask everybody listening to try to do the same thing. So my version would be of a one-line thesis, which again is just a fancy way of saying what is the meaning or purpose or message of this piece? I would say that we better ask where we are really searching for meaning in life or else risk ending up living a meaningless one. So again, I sort of take that away that whether you're looking at this from the father's point of view or the narrator's point of view or what the author's intention is, there's this larger sort of core meaning or idea that, okay, 
regardless of who you are or where you come from or what your experiences are, you really need to ask if you are trying to engage in actual meaningful connection and communication and that sort of thing. Because uh, otherwise it sort of feeds the cycle of negativity and lack of actual meaning. And this comes up in other stories. I've, again, like I said, I've written flash fiction stories. I've published flash fiction stories myself that really build upon this idea or this meaning, which I think, again, that's really cool to have that inspiration from one author to the next and one story to the next. But anyways, that's uh, all for this week. I try to keep literary analysis concise. Uh, I've only done a few of these so far, but I've gotten some really good feedback. Uh, A lot of viewers or listeners rather have really enjoyed them. So I think it's useful and interesting to analyze stories and particularly shorter stories in kind of tangible ways like like this. So anyways, we'll be back next week with more content. Like I said, on this podcast, we really kind of run the mill in terms of different types of content from teaching stories, writing stories, teaching advice, writing advice, all things writing and teaching basically. Uh, But that also gets into publishing and interviews, which I have a few interviews coming up as well. And I know from some viewer feedback or listener feedback, I don't know why I keep calling everybody viewers, but um, listeners really enjoy a lot of the interviews, which I do as well. It's difficult, especially during the semester to coordinate some of that. But I have some uh, guests coming up that I think will be really interesting and really engaging. So anyways, yeah, thanks for listening as always and doing some analysis with me. Uh, if you enjoy yourself, yes, uh, follow the podcast, uh, check out more of our content on YouTube. You can find me basically anywhere under the, uh, what would it be called moniker? I guess professor labs on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. I do all sorts of stuff on all those platforms. Uh, so check me out there and, uh, you know, feel free to tweet at me, hit me up on Instagram, wherever, if you have questions, thoughts, things that you'd like to see more, whatever the case is. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we'll be back next week with more. So thanks again for listening. And as I always say, until next time, keep learning.